Well, good morning to you all and a very Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. At least there's one of you wishing back. I do hope that you've had a blessed day already and that God will continue to bless you through this day. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day because it gives us such a wonderful opportunity to come together as family and friends in the bonds of love. But most of all, it gives us an opportunity to think back on the arrival of Jesus in the world and what it meant for us. As we think about this, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts to make it real in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like all good books, Scripture's account of how the universe and everything came to be and what happened next has a beginning, a middle bit, and an end. And of course, today we are meeting to celebrate the middle bit, the birth of Jesus, which is why I've obviously decided to base today's sermon on the beginning. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to the book of Genesis, and we'll be digging bits out of it here and there from chapters 1, 2, and 3, and I'm sure that uh, most of it you'll be familiar with anyway. First up, the most obvious question. If today is all about the middle, then why have we gone for the beginning? It's pretty simple, really. The beginning tells us why the middle was necessary and why the middle is so amazing. It also explains why the end looks as it does, bearing in mind, of course, that the middle and the end were never intended to be necessary. The helpful word count tool in my computer informs me that if I wanted to read all of Genesis 1.26 to 3.24, which is the bit I want to use today, then I would have to read you 1,581 words, which is obviously way, way too many on a day where there's prezies waiting at home. So I'm going to cheat. I'm going to use the words of a song written by Don Francisco that sums the whole thing up very nicely. It's titled, Adam, Where Are You? I'm not going to sing it. It goes like this. Unashamed and naked in a garden that has never seen the rain, Rulers of a kingdom full of joy, never marred by any pain. The morning all around them seems to celebrate the life they've just begun, and in the majesty of innocence, the king and queen come walking in the sun. But the master of deception now begins with his dissection of the word, and with all of his craft, and subtly the serpent twists the simple truths they've heard. While hanging in the balance is a world that has been placed at their command and all their unborn children die as both of them bow down to Satan's hand. And just before the evening in the cool of the day, they hear the voice of God as he is walking. And they can't abide his presence, so they try to hide away, but still they hear the sound as he is calling. Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, Adam, where are you? In the stifling heat of summer now, the gardener and his wife are in the field. And it seems that thorns and thistles are the only crop his struggles ever yield. He eats his meals in sorrow till he sinks into the dust whence he came. But all down through the ages he can hear 
his maker calling out his name. Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, Adam, where are you? And though the curse has long been broken, Adam's sons are still the prisoners of their fears, rushing helter-skelter to destruction with their fingers in their ears, while the father's voice is calling with an urgency I've never heard before. Won't you come in from the darkness now before it's time to finally close the door? Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, Adam, I love you. You know, friends, for me, that's one of the saddest songs I've ever heard. The Lord calling out for his lost and broken creation. The creation that you and I are part of today, this Christmas Day. Now, before we go on to think about this scene in Genesis, there's an important part of background. We know that God said it was all good. He said that everything he had created, the stars, the earth, the plants, the animals, and the people, everything was good. So what do you suppose that means exactly? I'm reasonably certain that I will use the very same word good a number of times today. Definitely at least once after I've finished lunch if I am to avoid a severe beating by she who cooked it. <laughs> so people use the word good a lot, but sometimes it's not enough. And very helpfully, it's a word at the bottom of a sliding scale of niceness. Good, better, best, awesome, extraordinary, superb, on fleek, and so on as we attempt to describe a state of approaching perfection. So by that standard, good implies something that is only a little better than adequate. So perhaps I should use another word for lunch. Is that what God meant when he said that what he had made was good, that it would do? That it was kind of okay until something better came along? No, no, not at all. You see, unlike humans, God doesn't need to describe these shades of grey between good and bad or good and excellent. For him, it's very simple. Things are either good or bad. There's nothing in between at all. And that's not because he is simple or naive. He is neither of those things. In fact, God is the most complicated and wise being of all. He exists eternally. He made everything material everywhere from absolutely nothing. And he did that just by saying that it should be so. He sees everything. He knows everything. He can do everything. And so he's so complicated that no human could ever hope to understand him. He's not naive. He's not simple. And since all that is so, we can be very sure that when God says that what he has made is good, and that obviously includes Adam and Eve here, it really means that it is utterly perfect. So that's where we all began. Perfectly, perfectly unashamed and naked in a garden that has never seen the rain. Rulers of a kingdom full of joy, never marred by any pain. The morning all around them seems to celebrate the life they've just begun. And in the majesty of innocence, the king and queen come walking in the sun. 
Can you see that scene in your mind's eye? Can you imagine what it must have been like to live there like that? It wasn't at all like today where we constantly live with doubt and fear and shame and anger and grief. No, it was a world of harmony and delight where God walked amongst his good creation and could be seen by and spoken to by anyone. But of course they were not alone. There was one there who hated God and wanted to destroy what he had made and take heaven for himself. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So, Lucifer, Satan, the devil, whatever name you give him, is as much opposed to good as the Lord is opposed to evil. He wants to destroy what God has made, and so he enters this idyllic scene to take advantage of the free will that God has given the man and the woman. Have you ever stopped to think about that at all? Free will, that you have it? And how valuable it is? Where do you think it came from? We can see from Genesis 1.16 that it's something that Adam clearly had. It reads, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now when you first read it, all that seems to be going on here is the standard speech. Behave or you'll be in big trouble. How does that suggest free will? Well, firstly, Adam is given the choice, isn't he? Behave or die. Why give the alternatives at all if there wasn't any possibility of choosing? Secondly, if Adam was merely a robot, as it were, programmed to behave exactly as God wanted him to, well this scene wouldn't be necessary at all, would it? So, clearly, Adam was given free will. And that, of course, begs a question. Why would God do that? I mean, he's got unlimited power, and he knows what's going to happen before it does, so why did he make people that he knew beforehand were going to mess things up? Well, I believe it is because for God, love and obedience freely given are the most exquisite and valuable things that can be found anywhere. And that's what God desires above all. He yearns for us to reply to his love for us, the love he expressed in creating us by freely choosing to love and obey him. So most unfortunately into our scene of perfection and paradise, we now have these two elements coming together, Satan, God's enemy, and the possibilities of human free will. A master of deception now begins with his dissection of the word and with all his craft. And subtly, the serpent twists the simple truths they've heard. While hanging in the balance is a world that has been placed at their command 
and all their unborn children die as both of them bow down to Satan's hand. <clears throat> this verse from Don Francisco so beautifully illustrates what happens next. You know, thanks to Hollywood, we're used to evil showing up as chairs and tables whirling around the room and blood and gore and violence and explosions. And so we might think that we know when to run away. But Satan doesn't work like that. So what really happens is we stay and we watch and we join in. As it says here, he is the master of deception. He is subtle. And he uses the very heart of our faith against us, the word of God. He takes what God has said and he cuts it to pieces and twists it so that it achieves his purposes of death. He hasn't appeared here in front of Adam and Eve as a giant fire-breathing dragon and forced them in fear of their lives to choose to disobey God, to sin. No, he says very reasonably, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It's like he's saying, Hey Eve, sure he said that, but is that what he really meant? Because, you know, you, you will not surely die. For God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see how clever that was? How Satan turns God's word to his own purposes and introduces doubt and makes them want more than the perfection they already have in just one or two sentences? Well, sadly, as we know, Adam and Eve take that bait and through their own free will they choose to disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit. But don't judge them harshly. We aren't any different. We should never imagine that for all our science and technology and sophistication we would do any better. Because the fact is that Satan is still cleverer than us today. Now, as wonderful as free will is, it does come along with another friend, which is the freedom to enjoy the consequences of your choice. Good choices have good consequences, and bad choices naturally result in the opposite, like not using good for lunch. And that's not a very popular message in today's world. We're told that we can do anything we like, and no one can stop you, and it'll all be a box of fluffies. But that isn't true now, and it wasn't true back then either. Do you remember how I said earlier that God doesn't need any shades of grey to understand the difference between good and bad? For him, there are only two possibilities. Freely given obedience is good. Freely chosen disobedience is not. And there are consequences for both. Since that is so, we know what is coming next, don't we? Up till now, Adam and Eve have enjoyed a remarkable innocence. But now they know it has ended. Now they know good and evil, and they know that they have chosen the latter. And so, like all good sinners, they try to hide. And just before the evening, in the cool of the day, they hear the voice of God as he is walking. And they can't abide his presence, so they try to hide away but still they hear the sound as he is calling. Adam, Adam, where are you? 
so sad. But do you think that it's remotely possible that God didn't know where they were? Of course not. God knows everything. He sees everything. We cannot hide from Him. Yet still He calls them. Perhaps He is not so much asking them to say, Here I am, Lord, as He is challenging them to look inside themselves and say, What have I done? And then make the right choice of what to do next. I have a personal suspicion. It's only that because Scripture doesn't actually give us this information. But I suspect that if Adam and Eve had come out from their hiding place at this point and said, I'm sorry, I did that, I won't do it again, that the story might have had a completely different ending. But they don't. Adam starts mumbling weak excuses, and worst of all, he tries to shift the blame onto Eve. And unfortunately, she doesn't impress, either because she tries Adam's line. Hey, it was my fault. It was the serpent. He deceived me. But God is not fooled. Bad choices must have bad consequences. Sin must be punished. He curses the serpent to become an eternal enemy of mankind. And he curses the woman too. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. And to Adam he says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so it is, as our song puts it, in the stifling heat of summer now, the gardener and his wife are in the field, and it seems that thorns and thistles are the only crop his struggles ever yield. He eats his meals in sorrow till he sinks in the dust whence he came, but all through the ages he can hear his maker calling out his name, Adam. Adam, where are you? Adam! Adam, where are you? And that's us today, isn't it? We understand that life is hard. But is that all there is? Are we now cursed to suffer and struggle forever without hope? No, because God still calls us. He wants us to come out of our hiding place and stand before him, not to make excuses, but to be accountable for what we have done. He wants to restore things between us to the way that it was when it was all made. Innocence and harmony and fellowship with him. And so he continues to call us throughout the ages. Adam, where are you? And this brings me finally to today, to the middle of the matter, to Christmas because God did something very wonderful. He did much more than merely call us. He came to get us, to rescue us, even when we stubbornly continued to hide in the bushes and make weak excuses. He freely chose to set aside his divinity, to become a man, the child Jesus, whose birth we celebrate today. But is that all it is? Today is just an excuse for a celebration? Yeah, I remember Jesus is supposed to have been born today and there were three wise men and a donkey and a star and some other stuff. Here, have a smart witch from half normal to celebrate. Now, let's put on some silly hats and have some turkey. If that's all we do, then we are completely missing the point. 
This isn't a cute story. The Bible is an account, not a novel. And that means that it describes things that really happened in history. And Jesus came into that history for a very specific reason. Those consequences. Sin always has consequences. And there isn't a man or woman who has ever lived who doesn't sin. More or less continuously. And so that naturally includes me and you. And what is the consequence? It's death. It doesn't mean that you just stop existing, that you're alive and then tomorrow, nothing at all. All statements to the effect of Dave as a going concern are hereby rendered inoperative. No. No, your most essential essence, what you are, who you are, is an immortal spirit. And so death in this instance means eternal separation of that spirit from God. Eternal punishment and no possibility of that new life on a new earth where things are supposed to be like they were in the beginning. So the reason Jesus came is exquisitely personal for every single human being. In deep love, he came to take the consequence of death on my behalf because there is nothing I could ever do to make amends for my sin. He came to take the consequence of death on your behalf because there is nothing you could ever do to make amends for your sin. No amount of apologies, no amount of good deeds will ever be enough because the broken pot can never mend itself. So God acted for us. Jesus came to pull us out of those bushes because he loved us and wanted to bring us home to be family again. Just like it was in the beginning. Now that might seem like it was a very long time ago. But he has never ceased to call us, to call you, Adam. Adam, where are you? Will you answer that call today or will you stick your fingers in your ears? Will you say, yes, Lord, here I am. I'm sorry for my sin. And I promise to follow you and your ways for the rest of your life. That's not so much to do, is it? That's all it takes on your part. Simply because that little boy Jesus was born. He was born in Bethlehem so long ago. God came to earth to rescue you on that day. Because he says, Adam. I love you. So will you be rescued? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have never ceased to call us. Thank you that despite our continuous disobedience, our stiff-necked posture, you have never stopped calling, that you have never given up. And the fact that you have, you have come to rescue us when we really, really didn't deserve it. Thank you for that little baby. And although he was very small, 
he did the greatest thing ever for you and me. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not be blind and deaf to that gift. That it would be more valuable to us than any present we might unwrap today. We pray that we would take that gift and have Jesus in our hearts forevermore. We pray this in his name. Amen.